This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're going to be talking Jack Irish today. We're lucky to have uh, two of the key creatives for what I believe is the third and final series of Jack Irish. Joining me as always is Andrew Mercado, of course, but our special guests, Matt Cameron and Ian Colley. Now, guys, welcome, guys. I thought we might start off by just getting us, tell us a little bit about, um, we might start with Ian, tell us about your um, Jack Irish journey, your involvement and, and what you do on this um, third series. Yeah, it's a, it's a long and winding road, old Jack Irish. It's been a pleasure from go to woe, to be honest. It is the last season. I mean, Jack Irish goes back to 2012 or even a bit earlier, but the first telly movie came out in 2012, which was Bad Debts. So essentially how it happened, Peter Temple, the author of the Jack Irish books, approached me about producing. He tried to get it up himself as a writer, adapting his own novels with ABC, but for various reasons it didn't get. And um, he, um, you know, sounded me out and I said, for sure, I was a big fan of his works, like many people. And we initially did um, a telemovie per book. There are four Jack Irish books, and the first one being Bad Debts, and then... Um, Black Tide and Dead Point. And by the time we were doing the fourth book or attempting to adapt the fourth book, White Dog, we realised, well, by then, telemovies have gone a bit out of favour. And, you know, the ABC, like many broadcasters, more interested in, you know, short series to sort of sustain. So we sort of took elements of White Dog in the first season of Jack. Uh, and since then, we've produced two more seasons. So, you know, essentially three telemovies and three seasons of Jack I Irish over the, over the time. We'd run out of books, but essentially we created our own storylines, but using the characters and, and the world of Jack Irish as the basis. Ian, so. would you recommend going back and watching that very first Jack Irish telemovie before we watch this third and final series? Because it is, are we coming full circle in the story and would it help to go back and watch the first one or maybe a couple of the first ones? Look, it definitely would help, but I don't think if you hadn't watched it and you don't get time, we go to air on the 13th of June, although it'll be an eye view as well. Um, it should be, you know, new viewers should be able to sort of come to it and still understand. But, yes, we have come full circle concerning the incident that kickstarted Jack Irish from the very beginning, which is when his wife, Isabel, was killed by a former client who'd been... Um, convicted and come out and blame Jack Irish for all the problems. And so it was a very, you know, sort of startling image that we kickstart Bad Deads with. And we now revisit that and we find the layers and the links to it, which I suppose we probably won't go into too much detail because it starts <laughs> providing spoiler alerts already. But it has to come full circle, which is a great way to finish off. And we get a bit of closure for Jack and for ourselves what did happen uh, back then that kickstart Jack's sort of, you know, well, both downfall because he was a high-flying criminal lawyer at the time and then he went into a malaise for a number of years and became the Jack Irish that we know, which is as a, a debt collector, finding missing people, a sort of jack-of-all-trades, as we say. Matt, now tell us about your involvement. You wear a few hats, writer, producer, series creator. Uh, yes, well, I came on board, you know, right back at the start of the telly movies, although it was Andrew Knight had already written the first telly movie and, uh, and I was to write the second one that, uh, of Black Tide. So, uh, yeah, I've been involved, you know, with it from the outset and it's, yeah, it's been, you know, it's, it's been a fantastic opportunity as a writer, I guess, to stay 
with something for so long and to get to kind of grow the world of it, um, obviously starting from, with a pretty big head start from Peter Temple, but just to, you know, um, feed off what the actors do each time and then go see, see an opportunity for the next storyline for that character based on what those actors uh, give you. So, yeah, it's been it's this and, you know, we've come to the finale now and we I guess we really wanted to own our finish, um, try and get in before we get shunted unceremoniously out the door. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it has been a, you know, a, a, it seems to me a very much loved series and we felt it was important to try to find a way to end it um, to satisfy those viewers. Matt, do you think you were brought into the world of Jack Irish because of your comedy writing background? I mean, you've done a lot of sketch comedy and written for McAuliffe and Eric Banner. And, I mean, Jack Irish, there's a there's a real thread of larrikin humour through that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I got my first opportunity in, in television writing through Andrew Knight. Um, so, and, of course, it was his company that produced a lot of those shows and, uh, yeah, he's been throwing me uh, bones and scraps from his table for, for a long time. Um, so I was pretty, yeah, pleased to come on board with this show because I had worked with uh, Guy Pearce before in a, a theatre show of mine. So, uh, you know, I mean, it was just a, a bit of a dream team, really, from the outset. But, I mean, I think the comedy part of Jack Irish has always been important it was there in the books and um and you know andrew and i certainly both like to write our dramas with comedy in them so they don't just become unrelentingly earnest and grim uh because i don't think life you know is like that uh even the grimmest life still has levity in it and uh surprising sort of moments of humor and so you know i actually think they if they're done right they really enhance the drama it gives it a, a point of difference in the sense compared to a lot of crime dramas which are very earnest and very straight drama in that sense. Ours is, I wouldn't call it a dramedy by any means, it's still a good crime drama, but got those, I mean, humour is very droll, it's very sardonic, it's very, um, yeah, it, it's sort of, it's not laugh out loud stuff, but there's some very amusing moments and it, it gives it, I think, a sort of nice point of difference to a lot of other crime dramas doing the rounds. If I could explore what Andrew asked in his first question about going back and maybe watching some of the old material, where does it now sit, all, all the th things for people who want to do that? And do how much of this final series comes from the books? Did, did, the, did the books wind up, if you like? Is there a sort of ending in the books or did you sort of, were you a lot freer with where you went with this? No, there was only the four books, as I mentioned. The last book, White Dog, was sort of we took elements of that for our first season. So Peter passed away probably two or two years, maybe three years now, time rushes. He actually did have a fifth book, and there's an omnibus collection of Peter Temple works, which was published by Text, his publishing house, which included the fifth Jack Irish, which was set in the art world, which is really interesting, but it was an unfinished manuscript. Um, we haven't taken any of that because it actually only was released. So, no, it's sort of, um, you know, it was really Matt and, and, and the writing team that came up with the idea of revisiting the incident that kick-started the Isabel assassination and, and using that as a, as a bookend, or it's a book in the sense of a device to come full circle, as we say. Um, in terms of 
people, viewers or listeners can uh, go to ABC iView. All the jacks are up there now, which is fantastic. The three tele movies plus the former two seasons. And there's also a thing on the ABC iView, maybe on Facebook or social media, a short refresher, which is all of matters about two or three minutes, I can't remember now, which essentially gives everyone a bit of a um, recap on the characters and the world of Jack, including the Isabel situation. So that's quite a good, if you don't have time, if you're time poor, then at least watching a refresher is a good way of um, kickstarting that the last season. With Yeah, and I think, I mean, as we know, audiences are incredibly sophisticated now with their sort of um, story, their approach to story. So, I, you know, I really think we do provide in this, in this final series enough of the kind of triggers and clues that they need to kind of keep up. But, um, yeah, I think, especially with crime stories, audiences, they don't miss a trick. So um, they could they can get there just through watching this this series cold. But as Ian says, I think it, it would enrich it for them uh, if they've watched more. But, you know, up to them. There's, there's such a massive uh, worldwide audience for Jack Orish. Now, it feels to me like I've seen it on just about every streaming platform. You say it's back on iView now. It's been on Netflix. I feel like maybe I've seen it on Stan for That's a while. Right. No, it's and on both Netflix and Stan. We yeah. can't get enough. We're just, you know, <laughs> you never get enough. Jack, wherever you go, it's like Big Brother is there. <laughs> no, look, it's, you know, in Australia particularly, it's a much-loved program, which is great. You know, it's one of ABC's if not highest rating, certainly the highest rating program. So I think they're feeling very confident about how it will be received this last season. We're very confident. We just think it's a cracker last season. And it's done well internationally as well. Um, you know, it's, it's in most territories around the world. So, um, so yeah, that's it. But sure, which, which, whichever platform people prefer, but you really had three, right? I view Netflix and Stan here to check them out. You've both been lucky across the life of this to to work with. I, I, I didn't do the math, but an amazing cast for, yeah. from the telly movies right the way through to now. And we should start off that, of course, by giving some paying tribute to Guy Pearce. Um, I mean, he was he was a recently established international star when you first started already, wasn't he? Oh yeah, we haven't we, we haven't created uh, we haven't kickstarted Guy Pearce's career. <laughs> I think, I mean, it was a huge coup really to get him, I would say. Um, yeah, he was, I mean, we're lucky he's one of those, uh, you know, Australian international actors that really genuinely uh, wants to work at home and, you know, wants to live at home when he can. So the series is a great chance for him to, you know, come home for a few months every now and again and, and be be living in, in his world. And, you know, he's incredibly... Uh, across all the yeah, actors and directors and who's, you know, who's at the top of their game in Australia. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's always keen to work here. I feel mm -hmm. like you almost created this role for Guy Pearce to do this, you know, you know, this Aussie experience. He can go off and make the movies internationally, but when he comes back and is back in his Melbourne setting for Jack Irish, I mean, he looks like he's at home and it, it feels like this is going to be, you know, a really iconic role for Guy Pearce always to have played Jack Irish. I, I think, you know, that's right. He... he he really engaged with material. I mean, obviously having people like Matt and Andrew and their connections with Guy from the, the outset. I'm not 
totally sure if he'd read the books beforehand, but obviously once he started reading the books plus the script, I think that the character really, you know, um, spoke to him. He actually had a background in Aussie rules as a Geelong juniors. Is that right, Matt? Um, you know, so there was a little bit of VAFL yeah. connection. And he wasn't, if, you, if you've read the books by Peter Temple, Jack Irish is a, a sort of full forward. So he's a much bigger, taller build than perhaps our guy. But you quickly, he just basically made the characters his own. So whenever I read the books now, all I hear is Guy Pierce's voice. Um, yeah, he's a Colin, he's, Guy's a Collingwood six-footer. And um, <laughs> as opposed to the tem- Temple's huge yeah. Yeah, Ruckman. But, but, yeah, I mean, I think what's, uh, you yeah, know, underestimated about Guy often is actually his sort of uh, comic abilities, you know, and he really does provide such a kind of strong sort of um, wry centre for the drama. But then, as we know, I mean, you know, he's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's quite extraordinary to watch him at work on, on set and just see how, you know, when a scene is a big scene and it's a kind of high wattage moment or you've got to sort of really go deep, he, he just, he sets the bar pretty high and seemingly effortlessly. Which of the other cast members we get to see in this final series have been along for the complete journey? Um, look, I think all, all the key ones, essentially. So you've got um, Shane um, as Barry Tregear, who has a key role. There is, of course, uh, Roy Billings and Aaron... Um, Person and Dusseldorf, of course, yeah. is back, and Damien Richardson, who was in the original. Um, Kate Atkinson wasn't in the very first telly movie, but was in the second one and is yeah. back as well. Um, you know, there's some other characters that we sort of added along the way that were very peripheral, if if indeed didn't even exist in the books, like Paul Franklin's um, character as, mm. as Brendan, the sort of dodgy crim. Um, so, you know, this, yeah, it really is a pretty much an embarrassment of riches as far as the support cast goes on this series because when you look at it, you know, and it occurred to me when we were filming, I just thought we've got a number of people here who really have carried their own series like Aaron for Mystery Road or Marta for Janet King and um, Shane Jacobson has carried his own yeah. series of shows or movies and, um, you know, Roy Billing, of course. Like, they're just... Every time you do a scene, you just think, this is like, these people could have their own show. We've got them as part of an ensemble. So, And let's not forget the Fitzroy Youth Club, you know, Terry, who are the heart and soul of it. They're they're my favourite. That was my next question to you. I mean, we've had, we've still got Terry Norris in this last series. We've still got John Flaus. Who was the third guy that was... And then you in incorporated that into the show? Yeah, so that was Ron Falk who played, um, uh, what was the character's name again, Matt? Uh, Norm. Norm, thank you. So, yeah, so sadly Ron passed away. We also had a few Charlie Taubes who was the grumpy carpenter in the (laughs) early telly movies. And sadly, both the actors, the original being Vadim Glauner who came out from Germany, and then David... um, Richie. Thank you. Jim, my memory is hopeless. Uh, David, sadly, both passed away, so we, we sort of had to retire that character. It was just becoming, well, it's just coming too sensitive in a sense. But when Ron passed away, we sort of made, you know, an event out of it as one of the great 
if club members who've passed away and um but yeah they, they really are the sort of um yeah like i said the heart and soul of jack irish in many ways yeah yeah one of the things i guess about this last series as much as anything thematically i guess we re we really have um been drawn to telling a story that's about you know the passing of time and about an era kind of being left behind and you know you know there is we see we get to see on the screen uh you know jack for instance you know as from years and years ago at the very start of this series through to now and you can see the age and the time that is you know kind of there on his face um and you know there's something really quite moving about that to see and you see the older guys who you know were old when we started frankly um but you know they it's it's all 10 years on you know and it's that sort of march of time is part of the drama and i think that's um as i say it's quite quite moving there's um some flashbacks to uh emma emma booth's character isabel yep. um just just re refresh our memory how how much did she appear um, look, I think we can safely say she. we used most of the flashbacks. We wanted to get her in, but COVID, remember we were... So this is just a recap. We were going to film, start filming in March last year, and then because of the COVID situation nationwide and particularly in Victoria, we didn't really get going until um, uh, November. And that made it difficult because Emma is now in LA, so we sort of had to recreate one of the nightmare scenes, using part of her, but you know, primarily that the flashbacks from the original Bad Debts one. So um, she's very much there as a, as a presence, and obviously with her voice and things. Yeah. So Emma was only in the first movie for you know, well, spoiler alert, but for the sort of opening scene really, and um, and yeah, I think she probably only did like a day's filming on the series so if, yeah when we did ADR with her on this last series you know speaking to her she said it's so strange to kind of come back to something after 10 years that she was you know barely in yeah. um, of course she's gone on to do so many things since that first telly movie so um, yeah but it's great to she's always been a pretty strong touchstone in the sort of tragedy and the traumatic background of the character, um, mm. what happened to his wife. So, yeah, it was great to be able to bring uh, bring her back in this last series. And yeah. that flashback scene with her shows Guy Pearce with, you know, almost jet black hair. I mean, have you sent him grey over the course of Jack Irish? We see <laughs> Guy Pearce then and go, my God, he's aged so much over this. Well, scene. yeah, and I mean, I should let you in on the cheat of that, though. When we first... Uh, when we filmed that first telly movie, the last thing that we shot was uh, that f that flashback scene of him, you know, with his wife being killed. Um, so, you know, Guy was able to be ragged and s scrappy for the whole movie, but then we just gave him a shave and a haircut. <laughs> yeah, really buffed and cleaned him up so that he looked like he was even younger again. Yeah. Um, so, yes, the, there is an amplified sense of ageing uh, of uh, Jack Irish across the series because of that. But, um, but you know, again, that's part of the story is just that, as Ian said, he was a high-flying lawyer when the f story first starts and, you know, and he becomes something quite different. Mm. And tell us about working with uh, Greg McLean as a director. 
Um, has, has he got history with the franchise? No, he, Greg was the um, Greg came on board. Uh, you know, we've had directors like Jeffrey Walker and you know Rib Stenders and quite a few over the over the years. Uh, but Greg was available. We really admired what he did, particularly on the gloaming and bloom. And he was Victorian. Sometimes, you know, increasingly you've got to look at within the state and also with our budget and with COVID and everything else. And, yeah, we really liked what he did, I think, particularly on the gloaming. It just felt he'd be a good fit. So we um, talked to him. He was a big fan of Jack Irish. And he was terrific, you know, a very collaborative, consultative, you know, team player. But he and the DOP, Martin Dean, you know, as viewers will see, he brought a real sort of, I think, a sort of, more noirish, slightly more stylistic sort of approach to it. Um, Matt, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I agree. I mean, it was a, it was really great to get a fresh eye on this last series, um, you know, and I guess, uh, you know, Greg definitely brought that and with Martin, yeah, created a, a, yeah, a different look that in some respects won't, you know, it'll feel like a continuation, but it is, you know, noticeable, uh, Difference. They use, you know, different cameras, anamorphic lenses, and you know, there's, there's sort of something just tangibly feels different about the light and and um, the look of the of the show. So, you know, and we felt like that was really important for us not to just be kind of going along doing the same as we've done before. You know, we want to keep challenging ourselves and invigorating the, the show and you know as, as we said it's you know we began this sort of 10 years ago and television has changed so much in 10 years there's, there's so many you know it's become really a kind of pr premium sort of storytelling medium in a lot of ways so it's important to us to keep pushing the envelope as it were. You've talked about having this embarrassment of riches with this magnificent supporting cast that you always had through Jack Irish I mean are you Able, are you really going to be able to say goodbye to this work or are you looking at what's there and thinking spin-off, prequel? I mean, <laughs> it's such a magnificent world. There's there's more there, isn't there? I think Matt wants to do the Christmas special. <laughs> but, um, no, look, I think, you know, it's interesting. I do another show called Doctor Doctor and we're basically called time on that as well. And I think you need to know when to call time on shows, you know, yeah. likewise with Rake. Um and we sort of feel, I mean, sometimes the market dictates, uh, tells you when it's going to be time anyway. But, I mean, Jack Irish is a much-loved show for the ABC. But, you know, we sort of feel we've milked it in terms of various story elements. And, and because we've come the full circle now with this last season with the um, revisiting the, the um, Isabel uh, massacre, that, you know what, we sort of feel now is a good time and perhaps... You know, we'd love to work with Guy and others on a new show for ABC. So it's just a matter of finding what maybe that new show is. Um, you know, Matt and I'll think of something else. But I think you yeah, eventually got to call the, you know, draw the line in the sand. And we feel this is a really strong last season to go out with. Um, could I ask you, Ian, a bit about the, the commercial success of the program? Um, have you had... Um sort of joint commissioning partners internationally or has it just gone out to marketplace um, each season? Yeah, the latter. So we have an international distributor called DCD. So DCD came up, they're a UK-based um, and they have, I think they're on board Slap at the beginning and, of course, Rake. So they've, they've sort of been involved in, you know, premium Aussie drama since, you know, certainly the 
um, that sort of semi-renaissance of the slaps and the rakes and others of this when ABC were really churning out, you know, great quality drama again before even the streamers were coming on board. Um, and anyway, so they've been our distributor really from the beginning and they then sell to, to Acorn in the US. It's, uh, it was Fox in the UK. Um, I think Sundance now has it as well, PBS. So there's a great range of different sort of um, broadcasters, both in Europe and um, North America. So, And I, I was just wondering with the, um, the proliferation of streaming services, is it a is it a good time to be selling content? I mean, is it? I don't know if it'll last forever, maybe. But is it a is it a good time to have content to sell? Oh, de definitely, definitely. I mean, I think now DCD. So originally, I should say our distributor for the telly movies was ZDF. ZDF Enterprises oh. are a German one. Now the rights have all folded into DCD, so they have the box set, as we say, and so they'll soon be selling the box set to these big global streamers. I think there's no doubt about that. It's much easier to sell the whole box and dice, um, almost like in a second window type thing. So that will probably be the next sort of um, uh, play. What's the strangest experience you've had with all of these people watching around the world? You know, have you discovered some mad Vietnamese fan or something? Like where's the, the strangest international audience reaction you've had? Mm. No, I, I mean, for me, I would have to say I, I would have no connection to that. I, I'm not somebody who sort of follows social media or anything like that, so I'm not sure if there's that kind of online feedback. But, um, yeah, it's just not something kind of I come across. It would be, be interesting to do so. I mean, I know the show plays in lots of different places and, there must be some really sort of unlikely viewers of the show, but, yeah, it's not something we've had contact with, to be honest. No, look, I, I do remember very early on, it's not so much uh, um, the audience feedback overseas, but the distributor who was, like I said, the German distributor from ZDF, who really enjoyed the show, but they said, oh, we find it really hard selling the old guys talking about Aussie rules that was totally alien. <laughs> I thought, well... I'm not going to change that, you know, that's, <laughs> that's our show and surely they can get it. But that was more thinking, really, you know, just because they don't understand Aussie rules, that's a problem for it. But, yeah. It's nice to think there might be people all around the world Googling the Fitzroy Football Club <laughs> yeah, trying, so. trying to work out what's all this about. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it is. And, I mean, as we know ourselves, I mean, because we watch so much content from the rest of the world, it's, you know, it, it's amazing what you kind of don't need to know. Um, in order to still get a show, you know, you can, you can, because the, the symbols of these things are kind of universal, you know, a, a sort of a loser football team um, or sporting team is the same in England, it's the same in America, it's the same in Europe, it's, you know, it's the same the world over. So, uh, yeah, I think those, as we know, you know, the most universal stories really are kind of the ones that are really specific, you know, and that's what Peter Temple did so well. He, did, he didn't just make it a Melbourne story, he made it a Fitzroy, a suburb in Melbourne story. And, and in doing so, you know, it becomes really particular. And, and then it actually, of course, becomes, if it's human, it becomes really universal. When, when Peter and I were discussing, you know, in the early days of Jack Irish, Peter was a very hardened St Kilda fan at that time. I'm St Kilda were really the Fitzroy of the, the comp. 
the, the cellar dwellers. And so it just fitted his whole sort of slightly cynical view of life. <laughs> the, um, Matt, could I ask you about how we've mentioned once during this interview how TV has changed over the years, the, the years you've been writing for, for television. Do you, how do you feel about the medium of free-to-air TV? It, it seems they're not commissioning a lot of drama, that sort of drifting maybe to the to the, um, the streaming services. Well, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, sadly, it does seem like a lot of free-to-air drama, and I, I do exempt the ABC yep. from this and SBS probably, but, you know, a lot of the commercial free-to-air seems to, you know, be more moving towards, you know, reality TV and things where they go, okay, well, that's that's how we can kind of build an audience because I guess that viewing experience has changed so much. I mean, I heard you guys talk on an earlier podcast, you've been talking about Mayor of Easttown, and I guess what's been interesting about that for people the world over is they've been forced to kind of watch it in an old-fashioned way, you know, to wait a week for another episode and to have ruminating time for a week to go, what, what's going to happen next and what does that mean? All those things used to kind of really um, tap into the way drama was made and told and particularly for, I guess, um, free-to-air networks. Um, but audiences, of course, now, you know, they, they, they want it now and they can get it now. Um, and so I guess, you know, it's um, in some respects it makes sense that it's sort of streaming TV where drama is more prominently housed and, and same with the ABC, which is, of course, is so strong with its eye view. Um, you know, it's such a big part of how people watch drama. You also everything. so much, you know, high-end quality stuff now with, with the streamers. And I talk about Dr. Doctor a lot, Ian, because if we talk about uh, take out the ABC and talk about Australian drama on Australian free-to-air commercial networks, yep. it always feels to me like they're trying to play it very safe to go for this broad audience. And yet Dr. Doctor to me represents a moment when Channel 9 commissioned a show with an anti-hero, a kind of a bad guy, Roger Corso, which yeah. which he, that could have sat very comfortably in a cable drama. It's like they incorporated that form of storytelling into a commercial drama and it worked. Mm -hmm. And when I see shows that don't do that, I think, why isn't everyone going back to that doctor, doctor model? They did it mm. so beautifully, brought yeah. the two worlds together, and here you are still going strong on Channel 9 all these years later. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think, you know, it's, well, full, full kudos to Nine for supporting us and we've got five seasons out, which has been fantastic. And I think they were a bit brave and they, they need to be now because the days of doing broad drama, as you said, with the heroic things, we... We, we are, you know, people so much more sophisticated in their viewing habits. They view so much more drama from, you know, Breaking Bad, all those things where basically the protagonist is flawed, is often an anti-hero. And that's why we like and can relate to them because we can see a bit of ourselves in there. And so they're more honest in a sense. And I think that's where, I mean, look, you know, the, the networks, the um, three commercial networks are having to seriously rethink how they do it now because obviously they're not getting the eyeballs they once got. People don't watch appointment TV anymore, you know, when I say anymore, not 
as much as they used to because we can generally do catch up and we can watch it when we want to watch it and drama is not something where like football like sport where you must watch it otherwise the results come and go on and you move on you can watch it at your own time we're all playing catch up a bit from here at Town because we love it so much but we don't sort of wait at 8 30 on a monday to watch it we eventually catch up with it so yeah it's just you know it's a, it's a different world now isn't it and i think all the broadcasters and the news streamers here and, and the producers who are providing content to them are having to adjust and that's still very much feels like everything's still in a bit of state of flux at the moment which is both you know curious and scary <laughs> ian i'd love to get your thoughts on um australian content regulation i know it was debated in uh, canberra yesterday i heard a bit of the um the politicians standing up for on either side of the the argument about whether you know streaming services should be sort of have a limit to the number of hours they should make or or, or sort of targets they should set. How, where do you sit on that? Look, to be honest, I'm still assessing. I can see both points of view. I certainly think if streamers can, for example, the recent Amazon launch, you know, with the number of uh, programs they announce. If the streamers can voluntarily get there in terms of providing, you know, a sizable amount of local production, then perhaps you don't need the heavy hand of regulation. But it's a question of whether they do, you know, properly invest in local content because there's definitely, um, you know, people aren't watching as we just talked about, you know, TV or TV drama in the traditional sense. And we need these markets and they are benefiting from all the eyeballs and they need to give back to the community in terms of supporting the local industry. Now, whether that's through a sort of heavy quota or expenditure requirement, or whether it's some voluntary scheme through, um, you know, the regulators, I, you know, I suppose the jury, we're still looking at both sides and I haven't totally come to a fixed opinion at the moment, but they definitely need to be supporting the industry here. Yeah, I mean, I'll, just to weigh in on that, I, I certainly as a um, storyteller myself, I feel like it's incredibly important that we, that the government kind of does everything that it can to um, protect the, the Australian voice and Australian storytelling. And I, and I don't actually believe they do enough. Um, you know, I think it's fair. One of the disadvantages we have in Australia is that we speak English. Um, so, you know, American and English shows, the audience will watch those going, oh, well, that's still, that still feels like my story, but it's not the same. You know, the part of the reaction people have to Jack Irish, Australian audiences have to Jack Irish is because it completely speaks to them on a really deep uh, mm. level, you know, and so we need to kind of protect our ability to tell those stories. And, uh, you know, it is hard to, certainly any time as a writer I speak to, you know, Americans to try to get something made. It's uh, we do speak a different language. You know, it's not they're not the same. You know, and the stories that uh, that you know the writers on Jack Irish can write uh, a very you know we can tap into something you know much deeper and truer if it's an Australian story. And we need to kind of find a way to make sure that we're able to make those shows because let's face it, American big American global streaming companies don't sort of set out to go, you know what, I'd love to tell a really small, intimate Australian story and get that right. You know, that, that's not their business model at all. So we've got to help protect that, I think. I mean, speaking English is both an advantage and a disadvantage because the thing is that the UK and the US produce so much programming 
that there's less of an incentive for those streamers to get Australian as well because they're sort of overwhelmed. So that's why they're investing more in non-English speaking countries, you know, from India to South America to Europe. So actually that's where it gets challenging for us because, you know, it was only last year before COVID that the US were, you know, in production doing 500 shows a year or something to that amount. So, you know, that's hard to compete against. But what's even more reason though, as Matt said, that we need some form of regulation, how the, the system, how it actually operates in practice I think we need to go through various models, but there's definitely a need for a commitment for local um, production from the streamers here. Just, just for me to finish up my my set of questions today, I'd like to hear a little bit about you from both of you. What sort of next that you're able to talk about uh, so far, Ian? You said you're you're at a, not crossroads, but you're at a point in your career where a couple of things are finishing up. Is it, that must be exciting, but maybe also a bit scary. Is it about what's next? Yeah, I mean, it's all just from a purely business point of view. <laughs> it's good to have a repeat season around the corner. Um, and you know, we, look, nothing's been announced about Doctor Doctors yet, but certainly, as, as we said, we have Jack Irish, um, and. But that's okay. You know, we're always developing, and we've got. Um, I, I'm not sure I can talk about but we have a big show we're doing with Warner Brothers at Warner Brothers Australia at the moment so that'll probably get announced soon and that's that's an exciting show that we're working on and we have you know basically some shows in development with Foxtel and with Stan and you know hopefully with the ABC soon again as well and the SBS of course well Matt and I worked on Sunshine together for a series that we've you know both got fond memories of and we actually have something very early development with them and hopefully Mr Cameron and I will be working on our next you know magnum opus fairly soon what about you Matt uh yes well I mean look there's just things in development and it's uh I mean I always make a point of never speaking about them because it just sounds really tragic (laughs) (laughs) because if they never come to pass and if anybody even bothers to remember they just say what was that thing you were banging on about it sounded like a certainty so, yeah, who, who knows? I mean, the, as I said, part of, I guess, the new landscape is that um, more likely you've got to sort of try to come up with a show that's got global reach, you know, that can travel. And so, you know, that, that makes it exciting that it could be on sort of a bigger canvas, but it also makes it really, they're really hard to get up now. So, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a long, long process. I mean, we, we talk fairly regularly to a number of the global streamers from obviously the Netflix and Amazon that have quite a strong toehold here to Disney or Star, which is their new sort of more adult, and to Apple, uh, Paramount Plus. So it's interesting. It really is a fascinating time as to how much, you know, they always talk about programs that are local but global in a sense that will have obviously that distinctive Australian feel but somehow will resonate, not feel too parochial or whatever, um, for a non-Australian audience. And that, that is the challenge, finding that mix of something. And that's where I think something like a Jack Irish works so well because it's so distinctively Australian without being too jingoistic about it. But it's also a genre and it's got a pointed difference to perhaps some other crime dramas which will, you know, which makes it appeal to a broader global audience. And, yeah, it's finding those sort of ideas and concepts that can work both in both senses of the word, which is, you know, the challenge going forward. 
kind of what happens to the bar in this last series of Jack Iris. It's kind of like the bar now in this series is the new world of streaming and those three old guys sitting at the bar with the old old school TV, yeah, with the full circle again. Well, that's right. So, I mean, the, the Prince of Prussia, which is the bar in Jack Irish, is probably, you know, emblematic of the change that we're going at because it has also had to change. You know, it was the last sort of non-gentrified pub basically in Melbourne, but certainly in Fitzroy. But in this last season, without giving too much away, it's senti had to be refurbished and keep up with the, you know, it's become a trendy sort of bar now. <laughs> uh, and, and the boys are sort of relics of the past. And it is that sort of changing world that we're in, which, you know, we, we love to explore in Jack Irish. All right, guys. Look, great uh, being able to talk to you both today. Um, congratulations on the... Um, the final Jack Irish. Um, so that's six episodes, am I right again? Uh, no, it's four. It's four, just four. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, it's been quite a ride, ride uh, for, for people getting new to the franchise. They've got a lot of great stuff to uh, work their way through. And um, we'll look forward to what you both get up to next. Yeah, well, I should say it'll be on ABC on the 13th of June, but it's the... A uh, long weekend because it's a Queen's public holiday, and then all four episodes will be on the iView. So if people are home on Monday, which is public holiday, they can stay in bed and binge watch all four eps. They can get a whole long weekend of Jack Irish, you know, get their fill. So fantastic. Okay, we'll leave it there. Many thanks. Thanks, thanks James. Good night. See you. Thank you.